Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are exploring the changing rules of business leadership and how CEOs are navigating this change. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Michal Avram. Um, Alan, I have a question for you that I'm pretty sure today's guest would be interested in hearing the answer to, and that's, how much TV do you get to watch? Wait, wait, are you really asking me that question? Uh, I, well, <laughs> so to be honest, I probably watch maybe 30 minutes in the morning on news and an hour at night before I go to bed. Is that fair? How about you? You can't ask me that question and not answer it yourself. You know, it it comes and goes. It depends if I'm binge watching something or not. But I would say maximum of two hours a day. And that's on a that's on a binge day. So, well, the question we're going to get into in a minute is how much of that watching is public television, uh, because our guest today is Paula Kerger, the CEO of PBS. And she's been in that job for 18 years. Yeah, that is a long time, nearly two decades at the role. And Alan, I have to ask you, can you imagine being CEO for 18 years? No, please, let's not talk about that. I got four years under my belt and it feels like 18. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, it's pretty tough, but I have a very soft spot in my uh, heart for PBS because I spent, gee, I think almost 10 years appearing regularly on a PBS show, Washington Week in Review. It was before Paula's time. Uh, when I went to Florida, I always felt famous. I was a big hit with the PBS crowd. And I have a soft spot in my heart for PBS for a different reason, and it's because of the kids' content. Um, one of the things I brought up on the show is not only my kids watch a lot, have watched a lot of it, uh, but I also watched a lot of it. It was one of the ways I, you know, got it, English was more ingrained in me at an earlier age uh, when my family moved to this country. So, anyways, the fact that she's been at this role for so long, going back to that, this is one of the things that I thought was super interesting uh, about this interview because you have to think about how much the world of TV has changed in the last 18 years. No, massive transformation. I agree with you. And and what's so interesting that we talk about this in the interview is that she was responsible for driving the digital transformation of PBS. She doesn't really have that much control. You have 330 public television stations that are all separately owned. She doesn't control them. And so she had to nudge, encourage, lead them into the future. Yeah. No, you think about how difficult uh, digital transformation is when you're not this federated, you know, organization. But in her case, uh, there are layers and layers of challenges. So, um, and I have to ask you, Alan, another question for you. You tried to sell her on the idea of producing more business content today, and how do you think that went over? Well, so I mentioned I used to do Washington Week in Review. They had a show then called Wall Street Week in Review. There was a brief time when our colleague Jeff Colvin from Fortune hosted a show there, but today they really don't have any business programming. I think that's a big uh, weakness. And Mahal, uh, I think we just should sit next, sit close to our phones and wait for Paula to call us and take leadership next to PBS. I agreed. I'm, uh, I'm sitting close to mine. And for now, here is our conversation with the CEO of PBS. Paula Kerger. Uh, so, Paula, I want to start with uh, the most fundamental question I'm sure you've been asked it a million times in this job. But 
why does the world need PBS? Why, why, given all that's going on in media, the explosion of different kinds of media, why is public access media important to us? Well, public media, um, and I think the need for PBS is frankly, has not shifted in the 50 years since it was created. We were created as a space to do all the things that the marketplace wasn't going to be able to sustain. And the marketplace shifts all the time, and we're seeing fundamental shifts right now. And um, and so areas like documentary film, uh, which have been a mainstay of public broadcasting, has gone through you know quite an interesting period over the last few years where it felt like there was a huge marketplace for docs and now almost no marketplace for docs unless you're writing about crime or, you know, celebrity adjacent or, you know, some current uh, affairs type of stuff. Um, there has to be a space where you can bring forward ideas that may not be hugely po popular. You have to be a place, there has to be a place for high quality children's content, uh, for a, really a place of inspiration and exploration. And that's what PBS has always been and, and, and continue so, to be. And so do you explicitly look at the marketplace and say, where are the gaps? What's missing yes. here? And, yeah. and then focus your attention on those. So you're not looking for the biggest opportunity. You're looking for the biggest need. I'm looking for the biggest need. And so if you think of the rest of the marketplace that's, that's chasing eyeballs, I'm chasing really the the public interest. And, you know, what is missing out of that? And it, and it shifts from, from time to time. And, you know, I, I, I have a place with all the other uh, media organizations at the Television Critics Association press tour. And I always feel like the outlier there because I often say that if suddenly there is a great interest in a franchise that used to be uh, a mainstay on public broadcasting, I claim success because the ability to really generate more and more good media to me is part of what PBS was was created to do. And, and if viewers can't get enough true crime <laughs> programming. <laughs> yeah, it's not really. I mean, we, we dabble a little bit in some of the British uh, uh, mystery type of shows, yeah. but, but that's not really the mainstay. I mean, what we're really thinking about are, you know, what are the programs that, look, we're not spinach, so we're hoping yeah. to be entertaining, but really when we hit our mark, we're hoping to be educational, inspirational. Um, some people like spinach, by the way, but- uh... <laughs> I love spinach, by the way. I love spinach. But uh, but but I want to ask, um, you know, obviously people's taste in programming um, changes. And, and I know you said you're looking at need, not just opportunity or not necessarily opportunity, but what those needs are um, has also shifted. Programming has shifted. You've been at PBS for a long time. Has the strategy, strategy, the underlying strategy shifted as well? Well, the look, what is our North Star is quality content, is content, I always call it content of consequence, content that actually has an impact in some way. And that, you know, I think for all companies, you have to understand what that, uh, what that core is and what is sacrosanct that you don't want to touch. But you can't stay frozen in amber. You have to evolve as an organization and you have to really pay attention to, you you know, the needs of the public and what does it mean to fulfill those needs? And so, you know, in terms of our strategy, um, the core about doing important programming, that remains. Documentary, kids programming, arts programming, news, 
all of those have been, you know, a through line. But how it's created, where we put emphasis, right now we're very focused on uh, climate programming, for example. We're very focused as we look out not only at the next election, but also the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence as two important nodes to really look at this whole idea of what does it mean to be an American and what does citizenship mean and how that then is um, is is thought about both in terms of helping young kids understand, you know, basic civics, as well as the rest of us really understand what is that glue that holds us together? What was envisioned when this country was put together? And, and what does this mean now? How does that inform what we do moving forward? That to me feels like a very public television kind of, of initiative to do. And by the way, in addition to the work that we do for kids and for adults, we also have services in classrooms. And so, you know, there's three pieces of the service that we provide and being able to look at all of it together holistically feels like something that is different and unique than any what every other media organization looks like. So in terms of, of how we think about our mission and how that plays out, obviously we're constantly thinking about the moment in history that we sit and what will be important. The second is, and has become very important over the last years, is and how do we connect with people? Where are the places where people sit? And how do we make sure that we're delivering content to reach them in those places where they consume content? So whether that's broadcast or through cable, which was traditionally how we were delivered, whether it's through YouTube TV and some of the other uh, platforms, whether it's on places like Digital Studios, which is our YouTube play, uh, which is a whole other type of storytelling, games for kids, all of that. So the so the, the shape of the content may shift because of the platforms themselves, and you want to take advantage of what they offer uh, offer up. But um, again, the 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 objectives behind it, the mission behind it, that stays the same. By the way, we we heard from our very own CTO about your digital transformation, um, which he's very familiar with. But I wonder if we can kind of you can walk us through maybe a little bit about how you started approaching this, because there are so many different directions you could go in with this, with creating a multi-platform experience, you know, being like you said, meeting where consumers where they are. But how did you approach this and make sure that it was still true to sort of what PBS has stood for over the years? It's, it's an interesting journey because also remember, I run a federated organization. So we have 330 individual stations that are separately owned and operated and governed in communities across the country. That sounds fun. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be, you're not going to say this, I know, but that has to be a nightmare. Well, it's it's an it's an interesting challenge. Let's say that. Because, well because I have a lot of responsibility, but no ultimate authority to force anybody to do anything. And if you think about this whole period that we've been through, uh, where for decades, our stations were very clear on what their job was. They had a broadcast signal that extended out over a certain geographic area, which was then replicated through cable, and they would push material out, and they controlled basically what was seen in their markets. For me, I kept thinking about, okay, if the public is going to require a different type of interaction with us, then how do we bring not only the PBS content, but all of our stations along this journey together. And so it has been iterative, like everything in this world, 
right? And so the the first work that we began to do in the digital space is we were watching an emerging group of talent on YouTube, some of whom would have been public television producers back a few years earlier, but now we're looking at this technology as a place to um, create content. And we thought, how interesting, because here is a space where we can bring some of the talent of people that were already there, not looking at TV producers and then trying to figure out how we're going to dump their stuff onto YouTube. This wasn't going to be a promotional play, but this was really thinking about what YouTube offered, besides the fact that it was also reaching a younger audience, which is something that I was always interested in, because I always felt like we had a lot of content that was of interest to a wide audience. But I spent many years on your terrestrial uh, yeah. channel, Washington Week in Review, which was Correct. made me Correct. very well known when I went to Florida. Correct. So, But there are a lot of younger people that do come in and out of our programming, right. but here is a space where clearly we could reach younger people. And so we created digital studios. We did it like a skunk works. It operated not within the television group. It operated as a separate organization. And we gave them a lot of latitude to experiment. And we got very lucky early on. We did this trippy little piece um, that was an auto-tune of a Fred Rogers song that went viral almost immediately. It was just a lightning in a bottle event. And we thought, oh, this is kind of cool because we can do something that gets people talking about ideas and public media in a very different way that feels tied to our legacy, but also feels very forward-looking. Yeah. And then we started to invest in in some YouTube artists and, you know, flash forward 22 million, you know, users uh, a month, you know, something like 3 billion uh, views since we started with it. It's been hugely successful. So that was the first venture that felt different than than public broadcasting. Then um, as, um, you know, we were looking at the decline in DVD sales, which funds a lot of our producers, you know, how are you going to make up for that revenue? And we, you know, began to to um, develop relationships with the Netflixes and Amazons and so forth. And our deepest relationship was built with Amazon. So we have a, a relationship with them where we not only distribute content, but we also have channels and that helps us to pay our producers revenue that they would have made in DVD sales. And, um, and then we began looking at some of the other platforms. We developed the app. It was very clear as smart TVs were evolving. Uh, that that was going to be a space. And then we began to look at other ways to distribute content. So when we did a deal with YouTube TV, which is our most significant recent deal, um, we said we would like to partner with you and we would like to bring 330 of our friends to the table. So what we would like you to carry is not just PBS, but we want you to carry all of our stations. And, you know, it was an interesting conversation, which eventually went really well. And so that set the stage for then a deal with Hulu Plus, with Local Live and others that we continue to move out. So we're bringing them all with us. It's just- Which you have to. We have to, but it's also, it, they couldn't do it on their own, but it's scary because we've got content now sitting in all these places they don't fully control, but we want them to own the experience locally. Jason Gerzadis, the CEO of Deloitte U.S., is the sponsor of this podcast and joins me today. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here. 
Jason, Leadership Next was created around this idea of stakeholder capitalism, but there's clearly been political pushback to that idea. And there's also economic pressure as the economy slows down. How do you serve all stakeholders? How do leaders balance the need to deliver profit and return on investment on the one hand, while also prioritizing the needs of these increasingly diverse stakeholders that they have to respond to? Yeah, decision-making in this environment is not easy, that's for sure. The historic norms of simply looking at ROI from a financial lens is insufficient, quite honestly. What we've seen and some of what we've tried to do ourselves is open up the aperture to recognize that there are actual multiple lenses that need to be utilized when evaluating significant decisions. How does a decision impact the workforce? How does it impact the societal stakeholders on whatever the decision may be? And so I think that discipline of a multifaceted set of value drivers and value stakeholders will be increasingly a more common part of all decision-making at board and executive levels. That discipline, Alan, will make it easier to actually be more cognizant and inclusive of the multiple stakeholders in making significant decisions. Now, that doesn't mean that the financial returns and expectations become secondary. I just think they're more balanced with the considerations with other stakeholder needs. Jason, thanks for your perspective and thanks for sponsoring Leadership Next. Thank you. This is such a great conversation. You were really talking about a case study of, in what Leadership Next is all about, modern leadership, where you are faced with a transformational existential challenge. You have the total responsibility, but none of the authority. None of the authority. <laughs> yeah. So, so what, what, and you've been doing it. I mean, this has been a 20-year journey we're talking yeah, about, close right? close to, yeah, 18 years. 18 years. So so what are the lessons you have learned yeah. about? Because, because frankly, this is, this is the challenge that virtually every leader we talk to, I would say, Mahal, faces. It's not like the old days when it was top-down, you tell people what to do, and if they all do what you tell them to do, you get your results. It's much more about motivating, inspiring, bringing people along, figuring out how you get everybody on the same page. What are the lessons you've learned in those 18 years that you can share with our listeners? It's, it's classic stakeholder management. It is understanding that to make any change, people have to have trust in you, that you are in it for the collective whole and that there isn't some you know, nefarious plot somewhere to rule the world or whatever it is. And that um, you know, I think mostly uh, in most circumstances, not all, but in, in many circumstances, um, that if people at least feel heard, even if they feel that you're asking them to do things that are painful, they'll give you a little bit more latitude. But if they feel that you've shut them out, that you've come into a circumstance where I know better, trust me, we're going to get this done, you just you've got to spend the time and the and the shoe leather. And I I would love to tell you that I had this all worked out from the very beginning, but I didn't. What happened to me was really very much a journey. When I took this job, PBS was in a very different place. There was a lot of distrust between our stations and PBS as a national organization. I had come from one of the stations. I'd come from New York. I was at WNET where I was the station manager and COO. And so at least I had, I could say I've walked in your shoes. I've, I've been down this journey before. 
but I was from New York, which is an island off the coast of North America. It's not exactly Peoria or it's not exactly all the stations. It's a big station. It's one that produces content for the rest of the country. And so I felt that saying I'd come from a station got me this far. But I really had to put myself out there. And by the way, not to sell myself, but to actually understand what was going on at our stations and what their challenges were. And I wanted to hear that not just from the CEOs, but I wanted to hear it from all the people on the ground so that I understand what are the things they were excited about, what are the things that were keeping them up at night, what services were they trying to provide, what were their sort of hopes for the future, what would I do or not touch, all of those things. And so um, I've, I have not visited every one of the 330 stations, but I've been to almost all of them. And, you know, so I felt like I had a good sense in conversation, not me just coming and talking to them, but really in a conversation of what, you know, what people were really wrestling with and that we yeah. could build in together. You know, Mahal, I know you have a question, but I just want to say we we uh, I've been interviewing business leaders for four decades, a little over four decades. It's getting kind of scary, actually. But but uh, uh, but the. The word that came – in fact, we did a poll earlier this year where we asked CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, how did your leadership change during the pandemic? And there was one word that was used by half the people who answered that question. Open-ended answer. You put any words in there you want to. And it was usually only a few words because they're CEOs and they – it was empathy. Empathy. Empathy, yeah. which was not a word I heard no. very often. And no. everything I'm hearing from you about the last 18 years yeah. – what is about empathetic leadership? It's empathetic leadership, and it's also um, I, it, the transparency piece is important because yeah. during COVID, you know, people wanted you to say it was all going to be okay. They wanted you to tell them things that you could not say, and I think that it is it is a big leap for a lot of CEOs to be able to say, you know what, I don't know. I don't know exactly where all this is going to go, but this is where I think, but you know what, we're going to go through this together and we're going to figure it out. And so I think, and, and hand in glove with that is definitely empathy. You know, so really working through this whole process over the last few years in particular, um, I, I think is just a powerful reminder of how important it is to be directly engaged. So I, I want to ask you, I mean, one, one of the challenges that's, and, and opportunities that's been building for quite a while, which you touched on is just the changing model, the changing landscape, but it's also changed the economics, including for the creators, for the creatives. Um, and so I'm curious, I mean, first of all, are the strikes, the WGA and SAG strikes impacting you and your programs? Um, and, and I think more broadly also, how do you think about making sure that as you're exploring these new platforms, that the creatives are, are are not only along for the ride, but that the economics work for everybody involved. Yeah. So we have a public uh, public media has a separate agreement uh, with um, uh, SAG-AFTRA and the WGA. So we are not subject to the um, the contract strikes that are underway now. And so we have not been deeply. We have a full pipeline of of, of uh, programming for this fall. So I hope you all watch a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but um, and, but I think that you know, as I described a, a few minutes ago, uh, one of the things that I've been very focused on is the entire economy. So I'm focused on our on our stations. 
But I'm very focused on the content creators because if the content creators are uh, are not held whole, this is what took us down the Amazon path, is we could see that they were going to lose the revenue that was coming into them through DVD sales. And we also could see that individually they weren't going to be able to negotiate their own deals that were really going to give them what they needed to uh, to continue on. It's, doc- it's a tough job to be a documentary filmmaker. And so uh, being able to bring all of our uh, you know producers together and to be able to negotiate all of this on their behalf is very much uh, with them in mind of what it would take to keep them together. So you're saying Ken Burns is going to be okay? Ken Burns is going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, Ken Burns is going to be okay. But, uh, you know, I and, and perhaps Ken... Ken could have done his own deal, but I think for for, for most of them, it, it was a you know it's a very difficult um, you know uh, uh, path, particularly now. I mean, you look at the recent Sundance Festival, where out of I don't know two thousand plus submissions, one deal was made out of last wow. year's Sundance Festival, wow. which is very different. Which is very different than just a few years ago when everything was being bought up. So I, you know, and so, and we're in it for the long haul. Um, you know, documentary film is a very important piece of what we do, and making sure that voices and stories that are not well told are brought forward. And again, that comes back to your first question about why public media. You know, that's that's a core piece of who we are is finding those stories and bringing them out. You mentioned earlier that we're headed into an election year. Uh, you, uh, P- uh, PBS is perceived rightly or wrongly as leaning to the left of the political spectrum and periodically, probably far too frequently for your taste, becomes a, a whipping boy in election season. How do you deal with it? Well, um, this is where having 330 stations that are in communities across this country are tremendously important uh, because they are the ones really that uh, spend a fair amount of effort making sure that local legislators understand what public media is in this country and what it provides to communities across this country. So the work that they do in schools, they'll bring legislators in so they can actually see the impact that we have in providing content and resources for teachers. A lot of legislators will come into local studios for their you know, debates and, and, and so forth. But I think broader, just helping them understand what you know, really is a tiny amount of money. I mean, if you look at all the public broadcasters in the world and you look at how much of the government funding goes into them versus us, we're sort of at the bottom of the list. I think we're like about a buck fifty a person is what the investment is, the national investment is in public media. And then we raise the rest. Um, and so just making sure what, that- What, what that, percentage of the total is is- Public money versus fifteen. That's one five, and that's an aggregate number. So here in New York, I don't know what it is for WNET. Probably about seven percent or eight percent of their budget. Um, Cookville, Tennessee, which is a little uh, station in Appalachia, that's about I don't know eighty miles from Nashville. It's probably about sixty percent of their budget. So you know, when Lyndon Johnson had this great idea of of uh, a public broadcasting service, his idea was that every community should have access. And uh, so that's one of the things that we make sure that we um, that legislators understand. Does that stop these periodic discussions about whether there should be funding? No, but um, but 
ultimately, and I'm looking for wood to knock on. We've been, uh, yeah. This, this is, is a wood-free studio. Wood studio <laughs> so I'm knocking on my head. I'm knocking on my head. But I, I think that, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll continue to prevail. And, you know, look, our stations in Florida, they run the, you know, they run a uh, tornado, uh, excuse me, hurricane alert. Uh, system, all of our stations together, the backup infrastructure for the emergency alert system for the country. So we are always looking for ways that we can use our capacity for the public good. We can't let you leave, or I can't let you leave at least without asking about PBS Kids programming. Um, Yay, PBS Kids. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, I'm a big Bluey fan, but you've got a huge slate of uh, pretty incredible programs and, and obviously have um, had quite a reputation on, on that front for a long time. Um, what do you think it is about PBS Kids, about the slate that, that you guys have? How do you keep it going? Um, how has it become such a cornerstone of, of, of the organization and how do you keep that up. Yeah. So, um, you know, that part of our work is so profoundly important. So we were talking a little while ago also about, you know, uh, technology and, and distribution. There are a lot of families that rely still on over-the-air television, and a lot of them have young children in their homes. And so for, you know, for many families, we are it in terms of children's programming. And our programming is put together uh, working in, in, in close collaboration with uh, early childhood education experts. So our programs are tested both in terms of their ability to hold kids' interest, uh, which everyone does, uh, but then the second part is and also around curriculum that kids need to master before they enter any kind of, of formal education. And so um, I think people always think about PBS and they think, oh, well, it's safe. But it also is very much structured on making sure that all kids, uh, including those that don't have access to high quality pre-K uh, education have that experience before they enter a formal education. And then we work with amazingly talented and creative producers. And as we have continued our work in the digital space with kids, we have remained very focused on how do we make sure that our content is accessible to kids that may not have access to robust broadband. So if you're a mom or dad and uh, you don't have broadband, you can download our games and kids can play them on your cell phone when you're not connected to the web. And I think that is, is again, an important piece of, of what we attempt to do. And I think with technology as it continue to, to, continues to evolve, we're interested in digital because when you watch something passively, you, you, know, you gain certain knowledge and experience. But when you interact uh, with any content, it the educational attainment rises significantly. So for us to be able to continue to look at linear storytelling as a powerful way to engage kids, that's great. And then to put that alongside of the, um, the work that we do um, uh, in, the, in the digital space, I think it just creates something that is quite significant in helping to close the learning gap. Well, I have to say, uh, well before apps, mobile apps existed, um, I, I have to at least partly credit PBS with me learning English when my family moved to this country. So thank you. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Wow, how cool. Uh, um, and, and that's great. But Paula, there is one big thing that's missing from people. Tell me. 
business program. <laughs> Actually, you're right. Yeah. And, you are and, right. And Mahal and I are here, <laughs> ready, ready to serve. Okay. <laughs> Actually, it is something we have, we have talked about from time to time because, uh, yeah, so we'll certainly keep your, uh, we'll keep your names in mind. How's that? It turns out there's an audience for it. It's amazing. Um, all right, Alan, I'm going to let you have the final question here. Okay, the final question. This is our this is our big final question this season. What book are you currently reading or recently finished that made a big impact on you? That made a big impact on me. Um, I, I just finished reading your brain on art, and it is it is quite interesting. I'm very interested in science anyway, and uh, and neuroscience. And I have always been a big proponent of the arts. I had a public school education of which art and music was a big piece. I have no talent in either area, but I think it changed my life. And this book really talks about how the neurons in your brain fire differently with arts experiences. So I am constantly stumping around the importance of getting arts education exposure to kids and adults in this book proved my point. Great, great. I'll read it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Leadership Next is edited and produced by Alexis Hott. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Our executive producer is Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a product of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.